electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. It's an old market adage, but where are we in this cycle? The bears may be coming out on Wall Street. Our guest is now is the time to be greedy. He'll make his case. Plus, it's George Soros versus BlackRock and now Ray Dalio. Market heavyweights are debating the merits of investing in China. Some say it's a threat to national security. Others say you can't ignore the economic powerhouse. We'll have the latest. And speaking of greed, when it comes to the next wave of IPOs, greed is out and do-gooding is in. Is it a strategy that will pay off for investors? But we begin with today's markets. Let's get right over to Dom Chu with those numbers. Dom? Those numbers are very much in the red today, but not by that much considering what we're just a stone's throw away from record highs in the overall market. The Dow Industrial is currently down just about 100 points, 35,000 almost on the level that uh, mark for the Dow Industrials, the S&P 500, a little above 4,500 right now, down about one quarter of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite, the real decliner of the day, off about three quarters of 1%, 15,264 the last trade there. Maybe a little bit of that mini or baby rotation they were talking about on Squawk earlier this morning. And here's another kind of example of what's happening today. The two best performing sectors on the day so far, and by a wide margin for the utilities trade. Now, that utilities trade is up roughly 11, 12 percent year to date. Consumer staples up around seven. They're the two worst performing sectors in the S&P 500 so far in 2021. But they are markedly outperforming today. So is there that baby or mini rotation going on? We'll see if that sticks. Utilities is a trade to watch. And then GameStop, the OG, the original meme stock out there. Off about one and a half percent heading into its big earnings report after the closing bell today. Right now, though. You can see a little bit less volatility. The options market is currently pricing in what could be a plus or minus 13% move in this stock after those earnings come out. Now, Kelly, to put that in perspective, that would be about the least volatile earnings report that we've seen from GameStop over the last year. It's been way more volatile around earnings. So perhaps today, a little bit of a respite for some of those folks out there involved in GameStop. I'll send things back over to you. Can't wait to find out. Dom, thank you very much, sir. Dom Chu. Stocks are faltering today, generally on concerns about the Delta variant of COVID, a possible slowdown in economic growth we've been discussing. But my next guest says all of this is a welcome sign, actually. Joining me now is Chris Crisanti. He is chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. Chris, it's good to have you. So why do you think we're already in the fearful part of this cycle? Well, thank you, Kelly. It's nice to be back again. Um, I'll tell you a dirty little secret about the, our, our business of equity strategists and portfolio management. It always sounds wiser to be pessimistic, but I have to advise people that it's often more profitable to be a little bit brave. And, and as the saying goes, you be a little greedy when people are 
what you think are overly fearful, which I think is where we are right now. So obviously you've got the Delta variant front and center. You also had a pretty crummy jobs report last Friday. And, and even the U.S. retreat in Afghanistan, which is obviously not an investment event, but it does add to the psychological pessimism of the moment. Sure. So I think all that pessimism uh, lead, is leading people to step back a little, especially from those economically sensitive you know, stocks that will do well as COVID eventually fades. But how can we be in any kind of fearful environment, Chris, when we have the NASDAQ, the S&P, I think even the Dow at sure. basically all-time highs? Well, I, I would agree with that. And so what I would advise is not to just throw your money in willy-nilly, but to pick those places that have been especially hit lately. So, you know, we have a couple of stocks to talk about, but in the travel and entertainment business um, and, and the, the, look at the stocks that haven't made highs all year. And, and that there are a few high quality companies that are still suffering from from fearfulness right now. So let's talk about a couple of the stocks that you think could do well here, because it's always one thing to talk big picture and quite another to right, say, listen, sure. here are the the actual picks right. and, and where you should be investing. I mean, Boeing is such a difficult story. Why is now the right moment to get involved? Well, I, I like to joke. People say a Boeing has hair on it. I say, forget that. It's Sasquatch. I mean, there is so much hair on this thing. But what I would say is take a deep breath and look down the road three to five years. That's our investment horizon. And what do you see? You see... I, I, COVID, frankly, probably being a grim memory by then, you see a, a growing middle class all around the world that needs more and more airplane seats. And, and best of all, you see an industry that has only two big players in it uh, that can build the big airplanes. So Boeing remains investment grade. And because of all this hair, you can buy it for half the price you would have had to pay during certain moments in 2019, for right. example. So it, it, it is a stock where people are still quite fearful. And I, I think exactly. So, I was going to say yeah. Boeing's probably a great example of what that looks like in practice. But your other one, explain to me, Disney is hardly sure. a name people are fearful about. I think the P.E. is around 50. Yeah, the, P, the P.E., like, like the P.E. of a number of technology names, I think is a little bit misleading now because they're investing so much money in, in gathering content, getting an online presence. So Disney is actually, the, 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 if there was a single company for this moment, it would be Disney. Because if COVID gets worse and people hunker down, Disney has all these streaming offerings now, of course, Disney Plus and, and Hulu, and, and they're starting to increase prices on those, which is just, all of that drops at the bottom line. On the other hand, if as I think will happen in six or 12 months, we'll all be so excited by the reopening, you go to the parks, you take the cruise ship. Mm -hmm. so, so Disney really wins both ways. And Disney has seriously underperformed the market over the last two years. And, and I get it that it looks expensive on paper, but they're really pouring tons of money into, into Disney Plus and, and Hulu. Mm -hmm. And I think in two or three years, that'll drop to the bottom line. It'll be terrifically profitable and, and the stock should be much higher. In other words, they're sort of compressing the E. Here, quick question I want to get in, Chris, before we move along. As you like to be sort of a contrarian with a lot of these investments, one place where I see your consensus and everybody's is on the fact that interest rates are going higher. Why not throw in right. the towel? You want to be bold. Tell me the 10 years going under 1%. Right. No, no, that's that's certainly true. Although it's funny, I, I think that was more of a consensus opinion three or four months ago than it is now. And, and boy, um, 
you get a, a lot of mix because I, I hear a lot of people saying, look, we've seen the, t- the peak of growth, which I think is probably true, but that doesn't mean we're not going to continue to grow quite strongly next year. So y- you're right. It, it may be more consensus, but, but I think one thing that we think that's not consensus is what you ought to be worried about isn't the Delta variant long-term, it's wage inflation. And that's kind of the, that, that could be the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of if we were to get true wage inflation, it'll hit corporate profits, yeah. it'll hit the PE ratio. So so what keeps me up at night is, is worrying about the structural wage inflation that we may be building in. Absolutely. Right and if you you know want a scare chart to go to bed with, look at the jolts number from this morning, almost exactly. 11 million job openings. That seems to imply like a 25% wage hike. That'd be very, right. very interesting. Even, right, even in the face of the of the, the resurgent Delta variant, and yes. imagine when that goes away, and it's a when, not an if. Um, you know, you know, it's going to be happy times are here again, except that then the Fed gets to do what it does best, which is start taking away the punch ball. Absolutely, that, that's kind of what is concerning to me about next year. Yeah, no, it's a, a great point. Uh, we're not there yet, though. I, I understand is your point, Chris. Thanks for your time today. It's really good to check in with you. Chris Cristanti is with MAI Capital Management. We're just talking about rates. Let's actually get to the news lord out of the bond market. Ten-year notes went up for auction top of the hour. Rick Santelli has the results. How'd it go over, Rick? You know what? It was like the last croissant in the buffet line. Everybody was fighting for these ten-year notes. I gave it an A as an apple. For $38 billion, first-time reopened ten-year, so we'll call them nine-year, 11 month securities. Let's go through it, shall we? The the yield, 1.338. It was trading around 1.35. Lower yield, higher price. Boy, we really sold these quite well. The Treasury should be smiling. All the metrics, the bid to cover, indirects at 71.1, directs at 16.6. These are all historically super solid. The dealers take 12.3%. Of course, the lower the percentage the dealers take, that means the more aggressive investors were, and they were aggressive. But why did they jump in on the 10-year? Well, one of my thoughts is tomorrow's ECB will never live up to the expected hawkishness that somehow has been built into it. Now, that's my opinion. The second thing is, you notice what the high has been the last session? And today, we keep coming off that 137 to 139, Kelly. We've talked before. That is a huge resistance level. Back to you. The last croissant in the buffet line is quite the line uh, to sum this up, Rick. Thank you so much, Rick Santelli. Let's turn now to the battle to dominate the buy now, pay later world. It's heating up with PayPal striking a multi-billion dollar deal today to acquire Japanese fintech company Payday. Our Courtney Reagan is here with the details and implications. Courtney. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, it's the hottest trend in fintech, and PayPal is really paying up for this one. The payment company buying Japan's payday for $2.7 billion in cash. It's a private company backed by George Soros' sons, their family offices. Payday is another buy now, pay later firm option for online shoppers that just seem to be cropping up everywhere. It follows Amazon's partnership with buy now, pay later company Affirm and Square's $29 billion purchase of Afterpay over the last several months. Now, under PayPal, Payday will continue to operate its existing business, its brand, and the leadership will remain. There's really little downside in the offering for these options at checkout for online retailers. And in some cases, it can solidify a sale or increase the purchase amount for a shopper that may not be able to pay in full immediately. So for retailers, it's a great option. For shoppers, installment payment plans typically offer lower interest rates than credit cards provide and just give another way to pay. 
The APRs charged are lower when paid over a shorter period of time, say three months over 12 months, or if the purchaser has better credit from the outset. For example, a firm's APR could be between zero or 30%, depending on the purchase amount and with a possible down payment required and that credit check. There are no fees for late payments, prepayments, there's no annual fees, and there's no fees to open or close an account. Afterpay has no interest but requires the purchase be paid over six weeks, so a shorter period of time. Late fees are capped at 25%, and if the payments aren't made, the account is paused. You basically can't use it to buy anything else. Now, Payday does have an option to split charges into three equal interest-free payments over a period of three months, and that just came into play in October for that company. Kelly? It is a huge space, uh, certainly one to watch, and I'm glad that you got into all the details about what those rates are, Courtney. Really appreciate it. Courtney Reagan with the very latest. Coming up, the quietest corner of Wall Street, what it is and why investors are battling to get in and stay there. Plus, BlackRock is firing back at billionaire investor George Soros after he called the firm's China business, quote, a tragic mistake. Today, another big player jumping into the debate, none other, none other than Ray Dalio defending BlackRock. Who's right? We'll debate in just a moment on The Exchange. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Cash continues to flood into the municipal bond market as investors seek tax-free investments amid calls for higher taxes from Washington. According to figures from the Investment Company Institute, mutual funds are receiving about $2 billion of inflows for weak immunity space. The supply is still decent. BlackRock says issuance is holding around 5% above the five-year average. And talk about diamond hands. None of the buyers seem interested in trading. Bloomberg notes that the amount of immunity bonds changing hands is at its lowest daily rate in 20 years. My next guest says the Fed may also have something to do with this. Joining me now is Michael Zizas. He's U.S. public policy strategist at Morgan Stanley. Michael, it's good to have you. I mean, Thanks for having me. <laughs> when I'm thinking about sort of the buying and hodling of muni bonds, I'm, I kind of have all these analogies to crypto uh, coming up in my head, not because of the similar structure, but why is it that they're so attractive to investors right now? Well, I mean, one school of thought is that there's likely a major tax increase on the horizon, and, and that's driving a lot of demand. But I think what's more likely at this point is that that demand is probably already in the price. You've got muni risk premia at generational lows, and you've got the relative yield of munis versus corporates also at near historical lows. And what we see in the surveys, for example, the one that we published this morning talking to 300 investors, is that they're more likely to be buying because they have too much cash only 10% of respondents, less than 10% said it had to do with taxes. It's just that they're getting too much cash in. 
Okay, this is fascinating and worth dwelling on for a second because it's an, a theme we see cropping up elsewhere. So you're telling me investors have a problem and that problem is too much cash, right? I mean, that's just, just such an extraordinary yeah. thing to think about. So they're really not motivated by tax efficiency. They're, they're simply looking, and my guess is these are people who already have a lot of stock market exposure, may not be interested in a lot of bond exposure given where prices are, as you mentioned, where yields are. And they're sort of looking around and say, where else do I go? You know, real estate investments? So it's interesting. Do you think that's what's driving the attractiveness of munis? Yeah, I, th I think that is mostly correct. And if you think about what's happened for the average investor's asset allocation over the last 12 months, equities have rallied substantially. Bonds haven't moved too much. So your equity allocation is probably greater than it was. It creates this natural demand to have duration and fixed income in your portfolio. But what that does is set up a risk in the muni market, which is very richly priced at the moment, that if the Fed's execution on the taper is poor, and if you get rates rising too fast and negative returns, you could get an unwind of some of that liquidity that's basically keeping things at rich levels. Right. And the, in, the irony is that for investors in the long run, they go, all right, I buy, I hold it. I don't care if five or 10 years I move on to something else. But in the meantime, to quote the Forbes headline, are states and cities taking on too much debt? If there's structurally higher demand for munis for no other reason than to have something to do with your money, is it allowing uh, municipalities to borrow more than they really otherwise should be? Well, I mean, certainly conditions are really favorable for borrowers at this point. There doesn't appear to be much of a leverage problem in the market, particularly given all of the money that was aided to state and local governments via the various CARES packages over the past year. Uh, but that being said, and that is very much consensus. Our survey, again, 70 to 90 percent of respondents based on the sector said that they expected credit fundamentals to be stable or improving. So the other risk here is obviously if for some reason Delta picks up and suppresses activity in a little more uh, a little more than it already has, then you'd expect some of these reopening sectors in the muni market, airports, hospitals, et cetera, they could come under pressure as investors start rethinking those narratives. Yeah, no, it's a great point. We have to go. But I mean, I'm just tempted since I ask you what budget, is that going to happen? Infrastructure, is that going to happen? What's your latest reading real quickly, yeah. Michael, on those major policy pieces? We still think so. We think it's a fourth quarter event. Obviously, the numbers are in flux, but we think it'll be pretty sizable. It'll have a deficit impact. It'll be one of the things that helps the Treasury yield get to the 180 year end target on the 10 year that our firm has. Very, very interesting. All right, Michael Zizas, thanks for your time today. We do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Coming up, more companies are emphasizing purpose over profit ahead of their public debuts. We'll look at one of the hottest trends in the IPO pipeline and how Wall Street is embracing this new generation of companies. Plus, a look at the rebirth of New York's financial district following the devastation of 9-11. We'll speak with real estate developer Bill Rudin, who says this transformation, nothing shy of a miracle. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back, everybody. New York Fed President John Williams speaking right now. Let's head to Steve Leisman for the headlines. Steve? Yeah, some breaking headlines from Williams, one of the top guys at the Fed we haven't heard from a lot. He says there's been very good progress towards maximum employment, but he still wants to see more improvement before declaring, quote, substantial further progress when it comes to jobs. And that means he's not quite ready to announce a taper yet, quite yet. Economic growth, he says, has been strong, but the pandemic is, quote, 
far from over with still a long way to go to maximum employment. The Delta variant, he says, it gives a new layer of uncertainty to the economy. On inflation, he says it's been largely transitory and expected to return to 2% by next year. We'll see you. Uh, the meeting is in two weeks, uh, Kelly. And we'll have the Beige Book at 2 o'clock. Back to you. Yes, about 40 minutes from now. Steve, thanks. Let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. A brief court interruption on the first day of trial in the Paris terror attacks. It happened when the main suspect shouted at the judge that he and the other 19 suspects are being, quote, treated like dogs. Salah Abdeslam has refused to speak to investigators about his part in the 2015 attacks around Paris that killed 130 people and wounded hundreds of others. In Idaho, a hospital has turned its biggest conference room into a space to accommodate 22 patients. The hospital in Coeur d'Alene is one of several in the state that have implemented crisis standards of care to try to deal with record numbers of COVID patients. And on the news, Idaho is not the only state with COVID patients at all-time highs. Plus, a look ahead at how President Biden may change his approach to fighting COVID in a big speech tomorrow night. Tune in tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And if COVID wasn't enough to deal with, new research predicts that the upcoming flu season could be severe. A University of Pittsburgh study estimates that there will be as many as 600,000 hospitalizations. That is roughly triple the amount for a normal flu season. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. No thanks, Rahel. No thanks. Yeah, you know, when it rains, it pours. Yeah. I'm thinking, do you wear a mask to help with the flu? You know, this is why. That's I, interesting. It, it couldn't hurt. Yeah. You hope that maybe still some of those measures could keep it from being uh, bad, but I'm sure they accounted for that. Anyway, Rahel, we appreciate it. Rahel Solomon with the very latest. The cleanup from Hurricane Ida does continue with hundreds of thousands of Louisiana homes and businesses going on day 10 now of no power. Christina Partsenevelis is in Lafitte, Louisiana with more for us. Christina? Kelly, it's been over a week, and look at this. The devastation is absolutely still all around us, which is why as of last night, there's over 400,000 people in Louisiana that still have absolutely no power. And even in areas like this, it's not gonna get better for weeks, which is why one nonprofit aims to provide an alternative energy solution for thousands in need. And that could mean something for your portfolio, but I'll have more coming up later on in the show. The debate over whether to invest in China right now is heating up as big billionaires weigh in. George Soros is saying steer clear, calling BlackRock's strategy to increase allocations there a losing bet. Soros saying, quote, pouring billions of dollars into China now is a tragic mistake. The firm, for its part, firing back, saying, quote, BlackRock's clients around the world, including many U.S. clients, seek a broad range of investments, including in China, to achieve their retirement and other financial objectives. Now, legendary investor Ray Dalio is also weighing in, saying it's part it's a part of the world that one can't neglect. And not only because of the opportunities it provides, but you lose the excitement if you're not there. All of this comes as China's regulatory crackdown continues. So does China represent a threat or an opportunity for investors? Joining me now, Marco Papich is chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group and author of the new book, Geopolitical Alpha. And DeWardrick McNeil is managing director at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. Great to have you both here. Marco, in a nutshell, should investors be cautious about investing in China or did hedge funds, for instance, everybody else just learn a massive lesson from the losses that they've taken? Do you think that's going to be enough to turn them off of exposure there? I think definitely in any period of transition, it makes sense to be cautious. And obviously, China is undergoing several transitions. I think uh, there is less emphasis on efficiency of the economy, which investors have gotten used to, more emphasis on, uh, income, in on income inequality. And also, there is a transition from 
you know, a, a US-centric tech-heavy developmental model to something more akin to what Chinese policymakers would prefer, which is a German-Japanese type manufacturing-heavy process. Lots of uncertainty. Uh, there's also domestic political uncertainty with the leadership transition next year. Uh, that said, I also think that there's opportunities in these kind of uh, volatile transition moments. Sure. And so, you know, I don't think it's a, it's a black or white one or a zero. If I'm quoting correctly from your work, you've said, you know, you can be tactical in China. You can look at opportunities in some of the really sold off uh, TMT names in China. Uh, you're saying they're basically giving you the asset allocation. They want you to invest in hard tech over soft tech. So would that be your advice for investors? So there's a tactical recommendation and a long-term strategic one. Tactically, I do think that if you have the risk tolerance, you could bottom fish in ADRs. Uh, they have uh, hit their resistance level, valuations in Tencent uh, and Alibaba have been crushed. Um, you know, so like, yes, if you have the risk tolerance, sure, why not, tactically speaking. More strategically, I think what's interesting about China is that it's, it's the only country in the world that's basically giving you a sectoral asset allocation for free. Um, and as I said, they're emphasizing hard tech, what they call hard tech. There's a lot of innovation in EVs, batteries. It's not really just to save the environment. For China, it's geopolitical, it's national security, and so on and so on. So I do think you can also be strategic in longer term. Right. I don't think I would be fishing for tech names on the longer term trajectory, but hard tech, yes, definitely. So, Dwardrick, here's where I turn, and let me quote what I think is probably the key part of what George Soros wrote in the Wall Street Journal uh, the other day. He said... Earlier efforts, investments by the U.S. and China, could have been morally justified by claims that they were building bridges to bring the countries closer. But the situation now is totally different. He says today the U.S. and China are engaged in a life and death conflict between two systems of governance, repressive and democratic. Dwardrick, so in other words, what Soros is saying that there's a difference between people seeing an investment opportunity and also thinking to themselves that that's acting in the best interests of the U.S. Now, there are going to be investors who say, I don't really care what's in the best interests of the U.S., but for those who do, what about the point Soros is making? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Kelly. First of all, I, I agree with my uh, fellow uh, my fellow guests that, look, this is for me about being cautious. If you accept what Soros is saying on the political side, and by the way, I, I do, uh, then one should definitely steer clear of China. But I think there are other reasons outside of perhaps the the hyper-political ones that Soros has raised for investors to be cautious about China. And, and that is whether or not you care what's happening in China, China has spent the last 20 years or so with a very benign strategic environment. That is no longer the case. Washington has certainly soured. The EU has soured on China. And that will change China's calculus on how it organizes its economy and how long the welcome mat is for foreign investors. And China would love to open this up to sectors that in the short term, they really need knowledge transfer and capital to do the things that they want to do. But what we've seen is that over time, that welcome mat shrinks quite a bit when China has developed the sector and then right. feels like it can move forward without expert or outside help. And that's one of my major concerns here is the time horizon. And so, in other words, you're saying, you know, if you have concern about the purpose of your investment that, you know, to heed Soros's warning. But even if you think that there's a strategic opportunity and you're sort of irregardless or regardless of what Soros is warning about, that investors don't know enough to know that the landscape that they're, you know, investing into will look the same in a few years' time as it looks today. Is, am I getting that right? I think you put it far better than I did, Kelly. Look, I think where we are right now, it was 
Donald Rumsfeld, if I may quote him, who said they're known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And in China right now, we have both. And so I think, for me, it's time for us to wait a little bit to see where this is going. And as I've said before on this air, this is more than just a regulatory event. This is more than just one or two sectors. Xi Jinping has indicated that he's looking to retool the Chinese economy and all of those things, not just sectoral things, all of those things should give investors pause for a moment is where I sit on this. And Marco, I just want to give you a final word on all of this in terms of sort of the ethics of investing in China. Have they changed? No, absolutely not. Uh, as long as it's legal, there is no ethical problem with investing in China. And I would actually love to talk to George about this and ask him, was it ethical for him to short individual European currencies as the European continent was struggling to integrate and overcome centuries of war by political integration, right? And obviously the answer is no, it wasn't unethical for him to do that. He revealed an inefficiency in the market and made billions and good for him. Similarly with China, I think that uh, by definition, generating alpha, and that's what we're paid to do in this community, in this epistemic community, which is the financial community, Generating alpha means generating returns beyond what is normal, what the, you know, like a perfectly functioning market is going to deliver. And that means being able to predict political and geopolitical shifts. It means being comfortable with often investing against grain. And so for me to generate alpha, I hope that there are more George sources out there that are going to hold their nose and walk away from opportunities in China. Um, because that's going to create immense alpha opportunities for the rest of us who can be strategic, and who can be, you know, open-minded and also aware of the risks that are out there. Interesting. And I personally will be watching to see what happens with Chinese investments in terms of the ESG buckets, if they will continue to meet requirements uh, for those criteria or not. Uh, it all depends on how the situation continues to evolve. Marco Papich and Dewardrick McNeil, thank you guys both for really fleshing out this issue. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Quick programming note, this debate will continue with Heyman Capital founder Kyle Bass joining Closing Bell at 4 p.m. Eastern today. Of course, he's a known China bear. You won't want to miss this exclusive interview and his take on this whole situation. And the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks is just a few days away. Up next, we'll discuss how lower Manhattan has evolved over the past two decades and the resilience of New York City with real estate developer William Rudin. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. From pandemics to superstorms, New York is a city known for its resilience. And perhaps the greatest test of that was the attacks on September 11th, which many thought the city would never recover from. True to form, the Big Apple reimagined, redeveloped, and rebuilt. And joining me now to discuss the evolution of NYC is real estate developer Bill Rudin. His Rudin management company owns four office properties in the financial district, and he is joined by our very own Bob Bassani down at the NYSE. Robert? Uh, thank you. And thank you, Kelly. And Bill, thanks very much for joining us. You know, Bill, I remember talking to you right after 9-11. And for those of us who were down here, as, as I was, it was a time of uh, tremendous grief and fear and, frankly, uh, pessimism. Uh, and when I talked to you yesterday and said, tell me about the last 20 years, you described what has happened downtown as a minor miracle. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think we have to look at it in a historical perspective. Go back and you and I talked many times in the mid-90s when Lower Manhattan had 30 million feet of vacant space. That's 30 percent. So back then, we created the, uh, the blueprint, so to speak, to diversify Lower Manhattan's economy. It used to be 70 percent financial service, 30 percent others. Today, it's uh, 30 percent financial service and 70 percent TAMI 
uh, education, many others. But we, we, we created the plan to convert older, obsolete office buildings to residential. And, and we were heading in the right direction. But obviously, 9-11 uh, was a major tragic event for everybody in downtown, the city, the country. And we had to take a step back. Uh, I think at that time, there were maybe 20,000 people living in lower Manhattan. And then all of a sudden, a year later, after 9-11, things started to come back together and people started moving back downtown. Companies moved back downtown and uh, things turned around. And uh, that's what I talked about in terms of miracle. And your article this morning talked about why 9-11 really could be a roadmap uh, for getting through the COVID crisis. The same thing. We every Everybody talked negatively about the downtown that wasn't coming back. Happened again after the financial crisis happened again after Sandy. Nobody was ever going to move and live downtown or work downtown. And before the COVID, uh, we had nearly 70,000 people living downtown. New companies moved downtown, Uber, Spotify, uh, Moet, uh, ESPN. So the, the, we will continue that momentum. Obviously, COVID has uh, stopped and slowed things down, but we're already seeing some very positive signs of people coming back to live downtown, companies uh, looking for yeah. space. We have a building around the corner, 80 Pine Street, where we've just completed a major reno renovation, yeah. and we're seeing tremendous activity going on. Yeah, you know, when I came to work at the New York Stock Exchange 20 years ago, it's 7 a.m. in the morning, there was no one here. There was no. nobody here at 5 o'clock either. Today, I come to work at 7 o'clock, 20 years later, and there's people walking their dogs out front of the New York Stock Exchange. Never happened before. There's restaurants uh, that are open down here. It's a 24-hour community. 65,000 people live downtown. I, I have lived and watched this transformation, including the redevelopment of the Trade Center, the West Side Highway, the development of the Transit Hub and the Cola Trava Center. It's truly a miracle. And yet, Bill, COVID hangs over everything. Uh, and when, when everybody says, well, you know, I don't know how much it's going to come back, frankly, because of the concerns or people are not going to come back into the office or we're not going to get the same number of tourists that we depend upon uh, down here. There are some parallels with 9-11. These are completely different events. But they did say that about 9-11, too. Nobody would ever come back. Well, that's exactly correct. And I think the positive things that are happening now is look at our uh, infection rate. It's one of the lowest in the country, below 3 percent. We were, you know, back in March and uh, April and, uh, you know, May and June of 2020, we were in a very, very bad spot. Today, the infection rate is very low. Our vaccination rates are hitting close to 80 uh, percent and increasing every single day. And I think that's going to give people confidence to start coming back to work. We have one of our buildings. We have 70 percent occupancy. So people are coming back into the workplace. Uh, it's important, as you well know, collaboration, uh, brand identity, uh, you know, working together, mentorship. These are things that you can't really do on Zoom. You have to be in the office environment. And we're seeing companies make announcements. Deutsche Bank uh, said they're, they're bringing their people back. We know JP Morgan and Goldman have brought their, their folks back. And so that will continue. It will take a little time. We've changed air filtration systems in our buildings. We've increased our cleaning protocols, all to try to make sure people feel uh, confident to come back into the work environment and to go back into the restaurants. You know, go to the seaport uh, yeah. this afternoon. It's going to be very, very busy. You go to the, you know, to uh, Brookfield Place. 
uh, right. or Italy. Uh, you know, it, it's all happening downtown. Uh, but obviously, you know, this week is a solemn week, and we, you know, we we remember all the things that uh, you know that happened, but also the rebirth and the and the recovery right. that uh, uh, that we but, that we that we've seen and will continue to see. But the, how do you address the the, the group that says? 25% of the people don't want to come back, and we're going to see a much smaller situation here for the, for the office spaces. You, when we talked about this yesterday, your point was think a little bit beyond the next year or two. Five years from now, plenty of people who didn't want to come back or didn't want to work in their office anymore might be moving downtown again, just like they did after 9-11, want to walk to work. Your, your point that you kept emphasizing to me when we did the interview yesterday was, was think five years from now when this is not as much of an issue as it is today, how different the attitude might be. Well, I, I hope it's not five years. I hope it's, you know, uh, early next year. And I think you, you make the point. Uh, over 30 percent of the people who work in lower Manhattan uh, walk to work. They live they live downtown. And so they have the ability to walk or take their bike. And I think that trend will continue. And some people will never come back to work, just like some people never came back to lower Manhattan, but other people came in their stead, the younger people uh, who want to be, we we have seen record leasing, residential leasing activity throughout New York City and downtown. In July, there were 7,600 uh, apartment leases signed. That was a record for, the, for New York City. The previous record was the month before. So people are coming back, people are buying condos, uh, and co-ops, they're 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 making yeah. their plans. We know from our own tenants, commercial tenants, that they are making plans to bring their people back. Some have adjusted based on COVID, but some have been moving moving ahead. So it just depends yeah. on the on the company. And some people will work from home, uh, but you know, there's debate about whether how effective that is, and we'll just have to see. But I'm reasonably confident. I, I think based uh, on pre- pre- previous history. That, that New York City yep. and downtown will recover. I think the key here, Bill, is to not look at the history of New York for the last 20 years and downtown for the last 20 years. It's to look at the history of New York and downtown in the last 400 years. That's how long downtown New York has been around. It has weathered complete disasters like fires that have ruined the city several times, cholera epidemics, riots, outbreaks, depressions, and it's always come back because it's a unique part uh, of the world. Bill, you and I have been down there a long time, and uh, I hope we'll continue to be down here. Thanks very much for joining us. Bob, we're uh, going to make you the spokesman for the recovery recovery of Lower Manhattan. You really, you (laughs) understand it. Yes, we've been... We, 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 we look pretty good for old guys, but uh, okay. yes, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get through this. Thank you, Bill. Kelly, back to you. Bob and Bill, thank you both very, very much. We appreciate it. And before we head to break, let's get a look at how the business landscape in Lower Manhattan has changed over just the past 20 years. Key companies that no longer are down there include the American Stock Exchange, the New York Mercantile Exchange, Merrill Lynch, and Solomon Smith Barney. The businesses that do have offices there now, perhaps no surprise, the list is pretty tech heavy. And as Bill just mentioned, it includes Spotify, Business Insider, and Vox Media. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Hundreds of thousands of Louisiana residents are still without power nine days after Hurricane Ida ravaged the region. And while gas generators may be the first solution that comes to mind, Christina Partsenevelis is down in Lafitte, Louisiana, with a look at why solar could be a better bet. Christina? 
Kelly, it seems like they just can't seem to get a break. Like you mentioned, it's been over a week, and yet there's still continued widespread damage to the power grid. Last night, according to the national grid here, there's over 400,000 people still without power. You can see in this area, it's going to be weeks before they can bring back the electricity here as there's still so much water, which is why one nonprofit, the Footprint Project, is aiming to provide an alternative energy solution to so many people in need. The volunteers travel to natural disasters work with local partners to provide solar panels for free so that people can charge their electronics as well as any type of small appliances like let's say a mini fridge and the volunteers say it's definitely a little bit safer than generators and more carbon conscious listen in if we can deploy cleaner energy to communities in crisis it helps them build back greener and that allows them to actually envision a future for their community um, and prepare for the next disaster. We do know that safety is a major concern, especially because so many people, even in this neighborhood, are using generators to supply electricity to their refrigerators and small electronics. But unfortunately, there's already been four deaths due to carbon monoxide poisoning, and over 140 people were also hospitalized, all because of Hurricane Ida. I know I can save people's life by just turning that generator off, moving it away, and getting away from the building and running off clean energy. Solar and batteries is a way of saving people. The Biden administration vows to lower costs. Just over the past decade, solar panel costs have declined 70%. And just today, the New York Times is reporting that we're gonna be expecting word from the administration that they're gonna come out with some plan to achieve the goal of solar power energy being about 45% in the United States by 2050. So that means all electricity would be powered by solar power. However, this sounds like great news and the administration is possibly looking into increased tax incentives but if you take a look at the sector as a whole and several of these stocks, it's just been hammered just over a year to date. Several companies like Nova, Solar Energy, Sunrun, down double digits, a lot of volatility. According to the few analyst reports that I looked at, much of that has to do with a increased capacity as well as price competition coming out of China, and that's hurting profitability for U.S. solar firms. Maybe, just maybe, Kelly, this could be good news for the solar industry if the administration passes it through Congress. As it rains on you and the water falls down there once again. I, you know, Christina, I think it's also worth noting that the makers of flat screen TVs aren't necessarily the top investments over the past decade, and, and solar may have a lot in common with that. But let me just ask you, especially as the rain falls down there and people are looking for solar or these alternative energy sources, I mean, they're going to be paying more for energy in the near term no matter what. Nat gas is at a seven-year high today. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So when we talk about solar panels, it's not all like, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's really expensive. According to a security guard I spoke to, just for his 25 panels, it costs $31,000 just to install. And then you can't just rip it off, especially in a storm. There's hazardous material. So that, too, you'd have to get crews to take down the panels. And then the last thing, too, is the tax incentive is a one-time deal. So you get a discount, but then that's it. So, yes, there's a lot of cost to it, but there's a big upside when you're talking about carbon footprint going forward. And they are working towards that. We're just may not necessarily be there. Yeah, man, it is a drenching rain down there. The last thing that region needs. Christina, thanks so much. Christina Parts the Nevelis in Lafitte, Louisiana.
for CNBC today. Still ahead, the companies poised to go public this fall are trying to distance themselves from that infamous greed is good mantra. But how much of the do-good mission is real and what is simply virtue signaling? We'll discuss that next. ESG trends are starting to show up in names that haven't even gone public yet. According to the Wall Street Journal, the companies slated to debut this fall, like Allbirds and Rent the Runway, are saying the mission is more important than the money. But how much of this messaging is legitimate and what will investors think? Joining me now to discuss is journal reporter Corey Drebush, along with Dan Primack, who is business editor at Axios. Welcome, guys. Corey, I'll start with you. Does the, do they actually change the way they're doing business because of this emphasis? Um, well, for many of them, yes. Uh, it's not just talk. Uh, there's obviously some companies that are sifting through their business practices to find sustainable things to brag about. But met for many of these companies, they were founded on this mission. And we're just seeing a new generation of, sort of mission-founded companies, right. like in all, for example, or uh, Chobani. Yep. And I think Warby Parker was originally, Dan, a B Corp. Is that still a thing? And how does that affect the way that they're able to raise money and go public? I mean, I have to be honest, it seems to me more to explain a story about the company and its personality than to have any anything to really do with the way that it does business. Am I missing something? No, you're not. I think that's correct. By the way, Warby Parker, yeah, I think it says they're going to be the first company to ever IPO as a B Corp. So that is still technically a thing. But no, right. This is more about messaging, uh, probably less to investors than it is to consumers. But since these companies have used this as part of their message to consumers, it becomes part of their message to investors. So investors can better understand how these companies are maybe a little bit differentiated. The one thing I would say is, though, for them going public, this could get them into some ESG focused ETFs or other funds that otherwise they might not be able to as easily get into. Corey, are there any words of caution for investors here, or is this just simply something we'll start hearing more and more about? Um, I guess uh, investors, besides uh, just reading SEC filings to look at what the ESG uh, focus is, um, I think we will be hearing more about them. And Public Benefit Corp, um, that's what Warby Parker is, Allbirds is, Lemonade, if you remember their IPO. Mm -hmm. They are. That's a new type of distinction that they want to be. That you have a fiduciary duty to both your shareholders and um, some social good, like the environment. So that's something to think about. Right. Um, one lawyer I talked to did say that that could come into play if there's an M and A offer on the table. Who do you oh. need to have the best offer? offer for. Oh, that's very interesting because that's exactly where this sort of dual obligation could become a very practical reality for investors, especially. Corey, thank you. Corey Drebush for your time today. Dan Primack, thank you as always as well. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.